Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. So when she comes on and says, recording in progress, I then expect that she's going to ask us a question. So every time we start this podcast, I have to edit out this pause when I feel like we're both waiting for the next thing that the disembodied voice is going to say. (laughs) Well, why don't you just leave it in and and maybe sometimes she'll surprise us. Yeah, she doesn't get recorded. She just announces that we're being recorded. So, Mm. hmm, yeah. It reminds me of the disembodied voice from um, the Ministry of Magic and Harry Potter. (laughs) There really is a Harry Potter analogy for everything as well as baseball. Mm. You know that I'm going day after tomorrow to Cornwall. I know. Yeah. And I looked up the place where we're going to be staying, which is uh, Truro. And I don't know anything about it. I've done very little preparation i'm just relying on people that we are traveling with to take us places but i did go on the internet and look to see if truro had a magic shop oh yeah because every time we go to a different city or place i'm interested to see if there's magic because i like magic and it's always have a deck of cards with me and things that i can do and they have a Harry Potter magic shop in Truro. That's And yes, I am going. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I, you know, I've never been to any aspect of the sort of um, commercialized, like I've never been to Harry Potter land at Disney World or um, the castle in, in, in Scotland, I think, where they filmed it. It's, I've never been to any of that. It's um, well in in yeah. Edinburgh, <clears throat> there is a coffee shop that has, <clears throat> pardon me, that has been made now into a very commercial place uh-huh. that has lines of kids lining up to get into it, which is where the author Rowling, mm-hmm. yeah, started writing Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, it changed a whole generation of kids and readers and and adults, I I might add. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, that'll be fun. You know, this is getting far afield of what we said we might possibly talk about, but one of the people that I listen to on a regular basis is Stephen Colbert. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's kind of where I get the news that I get <laughs> some of it anyway. Yeah. And um, Stephen Colbert is an intense fan of Lord of the Rings. I have never read Lord of the Rings. Hmm. Have you? I've read The Hobbit, um, but I didn't, I didn't read past that. I, I, yeah, it's funny. I mean, in general, I'm not actually a big like science fiction person. Um, and, and, Harry Potter kind of slips that blurry line between science fiction and adventure and, um, you know, drama. 
but so I, I, I did enjoy the movies, the Lord of the Ring though, but they have a very strong uh, sort of Christian mythology undergirding them. And J.R.R. Tolkien, I think was a very religious person. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I just haven't been able to get interested in it. Yeah. My, uh, <clears throat> my mother died and um, some months after she had died, uh, we persuaded my father to come to Houston for a visit. And um, so since both of our grandchildren live here with their families, he was able to spend time with us and spend time with each of them in rotation. It was a good thing. And um, so we took my father to see a Harry Potter film. Mm-hmm. And um, my father was in his late 80s. Huh. Maybe he was even as, oh, uh, he died when he was 94. Uh-huh. So this could have been, he was certainly older than me. Uh-huh. But this is years ago. Uh-huh. And uh, so we took him to see a Harry Potter film. And I wondered all through it, what is he thinking? This, this guy... <clears throat> and so after it was older, I, over, I, I said to him, so what did you think of that movie? And he said, well, that woman, referring to Rowling, that woman had quite an imagination. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, wow. That was it? That was all he had to say? Well, yeah. She did. Yeah, she did. This is true. This is true. Yeah. So I wanted to let people know that you and I have talked and gotten clear about a schedule of co-teaching and you're going to teach with me on the 24th of August and then no, 14th. the 14th, 14th, <laughs> I got it wrong, yeah. the 14th of August and then the first Sunday of every month thereafter in perpetuity. <laughs> Forever and ever. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, well, that'll be fun. And um, yeah, I, I, I think, I think that I am speaking for both of us, but those are rich times for both of us. And we hope for those who engage as well. Um, so, yeah. 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 So, no, we, I, this is the uh, last time that I will be with you for two weeks. Yeah. On the podcast. So yeah. you can get somebody else. Or, or just give us a pause. Summers are funny anyway, where summers well, are so I, you know, I am uh, surprised by how many people I run into or hear from over the email who listen to us. Thank yeah. you for listening and thank mm-hmm. you for tuning in on Sunday. And um, they're just hours and hours and hours of planning and preparation that go into these podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, it's what it's what Holly Hudley said she wanted to do from the beginning. It just <clears throat> record conversations that she and I were having. Yeah. Well, you know, it started, I was thinking about sort of how we got into this and, and it started during the beginning of COVID when we thought, well, maybe there's another way to sort of reach beyond our ourselves um, into the class, into those who attend the class and sort of include them in this process of, because it was when we were, regularly um, co-teaching together. And so it seemed like a fun idea to sort of include everyone in that process, whoever wanted to, and to build community when we were so 
disenfranchised from one another. So, you know, this podcast may have a shelf life and it, it may not, you know, it may go on in perpetuity. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but well, it's amazing. It's amazing to me how many people have chosen to continue an online relationship to ordinary life to you and to me rather than to connect in person, even when that's an option. Yeah. <clears throat> and I, I it, it, the part of me completely understands that and loves the sort of convenience of online because it is, uh, I've gotten for sure so used to just having the convenience of my home for meetings. You know, I was listening to something the other night. Um, actually, it was an introduction to um, the spiritual direction program that I would like to apply for. And I was cooking dinner while I was listening and I was still able to ask questions and I was still able to be engaged in the listening, but I could do something else. Um, and there's something to be said for sort of splitting your attention, but there's also something to be said for, well, this happens at a little bit of an inconvenient time for me. I need to make dinner for my kids, but I really want to listen to it. So there's some convenience that happens too. Um, and we've got to figure that out, right? That line between undivided attention and, and attention. So, um, yeah, but I'm thankful for the people who continue to listen online too. It's such a great way to get a little bit of wisdom every week from you. <laughs> you know, we were, <clears throat> we were, as when I say we now, I'm using the word referring to St. Paul's. Mm -hmm. We were very lucky slash fortunate that we already had in place um, and thanks in part to some really generous donors, we had in place um, the ability and had already been live streaming on their life before yep. the COVID hit. And um, also that's true with the church services here at St. Paul's. <clears throat> so unlike many churches that did not have that facility, we were able to just maintain and go on with a huge online presence. And a lot of churches couldn't do that. And sadly, they've gone by the wayside. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an interesting time for churches too. But, and I also, you know, I'd like to challenge churches a little bit in this moment to think beyond the institution, the actual physical place. Um, I think there's so much that happens in the community and in the world. And sometimes I think that churches can become hyper-focused on the place or the space as opposed to seeing the whole world as our church. Um, mm -hmm. And I think I was having this conversation with someone the other day that, you know, money that comes into churches, in my opinion, should be going back out to community or the world rather than to sort of edify the, the buildings or edify the institution. Um, I think it's, you edify know- Edify that. Yeah. <clears throat> edify the edifice that's exactly right <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah the words are connected yeah. yeah yeah so absolutely they're 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 connected so yeah I think that's you know we, we've talked about this a lot over the last couple of years but it is a time to rethink everything and um humans it seems are always a little slow to engage in that imaginatory process we tend to let things get ahead of us before we really know how to respond to them. But I do think this is a time to really radically reimagine what it could mean to be a church. Mm -hmm. 
I read a review of a book about Reinhold Niebuhr, mm-hmm. who is a person that I had to study when I was in the university and in seminary. <clears throat> and Reinhold Niebuhr was a really, I think he was an ethicist. The way I would talk about him, he talked about Christ and culture and moral moral man. Mm-hmm. He was a forgive his language. And, and society, and, and one of the things that Niebuhr said was that an individual person is has a tendency to be much more, um, to behave in a much gentler, uh, compassionate, giving way than people do in groups. When people get in groups, they can do some really heinous things. Mm. Uh, People will do in groups what they would never think about doing separately. Interesting. And I would say the same thing is true on the reverse side of that coin. When people do come together for good, Mm -hmm. they have the ability to generate a lot of the resources, both financial and uh, human resources and all sorts of other things to be able to affect good in the world. Hmm. And the church is in a, a unique position to do that. I once heard that that the religious institutions next to the government mm-hmm. own more land and buy more products collectively mm-hmm. than any other group. Yeah. And um, we could, if we could only harness that mm-hmm. to be things that were done in the name of justice and equity, that would be a good thing. Absolutely. It's interesting hearing you say what Niebuhr said, um, that in groups we do more harm than we do individually. And, and you're right, it does work both ways. I suppose that it really is about what is the energy that we're gathering around, you know, and, and how well, I, to tease that apart a little bit, you know, how well formed are all of the individuals coming to the group so that they can both stand in their own sort of autonomy as well as in the embeddedness of the group. And when we come to a group with an unformed sense of self, with an unformed sense of morality, an unformed sense of what is justice, freedom, and love, then we are more likely to participate in ways that are harmful. Because we find a sense of belonging in a group and the unformed self can be absorbed into the group in whatever way it's kind of outputting its energy, right? Mm -hmm. Like translate that to, let's say we have um, a group coming together with with individuals who are well-formed, who are leading with justice, love, and freedom, then then that group has the power to make great change and has the power to be more inclusive and to hold space for the evolution of more well-formed individuals as well as mm-hmm. to change the world. And so I, I don't know, I, I, it's, it's interesting to me to think of groups being spaces of harm rather than um, potential spaces of good. Hmm. Well, I'm just thinking that if somebody were much more astute and knowledgeable about history than me, I think that there's been probably more evidence of mob violence in the 
in human activity than there has been a mob good. Mm. Hmm. Have you ever been to a baseball game? I have a couple of people in my life who threaten that they're going to kidnap me and take me to a baseball game. It hasn't happened yet, but we'll just see if that happens. Yeah. The experience of being in a a baseball game and um, Fritz Kunkel actually writes about this is that we in this event come together in this kind of glorious sense of we. It's not necessarily a wise we or a fully formed we, but we kind of rise and fall together based on the energy, but based on what happens on the field, right? I have seen what happens in um, Britain and great men, great what used to be called Greater Britain about uh-huh. soccer matches. Yeah, well, they, they had some melees. Yeah, well, you get to go, you go watch a Yankees Red Sox game, and there's at least five fights that break out every single game. And so, you know, again, the energy of of the the energy of the group and what's being brought into it is going to dictate how the group goes. So maybe there's been less good done in sort of mob mentality than bad, than not. But it's interesting, too, that we are in the throes right now of these like lone shooters who are doing horrendous amounts of violence to groups. Right. Where our, our society right now is trapped by these individuals who can go by semi-automatic weapons and immediately destroy a group. So it's an, you know, um, individuals can do a lot of harm too, I guess is what I'm saying. So um, a couple of responses to that. One is a response that my beautiful bride, Sherry made. And then mine is, My response to like the the shooter in Uvalde, um, as well as the shooter in Buffalo, and the one in Chicago Mm -hmm. recently, those three, they were in a context of people who knew what they were up to. They might not have known specific, but they knew these people were trouble folks. Mm -hmm. And Sherry said, she showed me something that I think was in the New York Times about this 18-year-old kid in Uvalde went and bought two automatic weapons and I think the ammunition he got online. Mm. But the two automatic weapons cost around $1,500 each. So mm. a total of, say, $3,000 for two weapons and the ammunition cost around $1,500. And she said to me, where does an 18-year-old get that kind of money? So somebody had to know the people who sold him the weapons for one thing. Yeah. Yeah. We got a system that's pretty broken. We got a system that's so complicit with these things and complicity is silence. So when we are, is Martin Luther King, he said we're more silent about the things that matter. <laughs> we're, we're doing as much harm as the, as the actual harm doer. And yeah, I mean, silence is complicity. So just sort of going along with it is 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 complicity. Mm. Hmm. 
So I, when we talked yesterday, we were talking about um, a big variety of things about teaching and planning what we're going to talk about. And I want to get to the story in the Gospel of John about post-resurrection Jesus. Mm-hmm. I've been talking about, as you know, resurrection and inc- incarnation, but resurrection not as a historic event that occurred, mm-hmm. but resurrection as something that is happening now and we have our choice to participate in it or not yeah maybe i should rephrase that we have our choice to participate in it consciously or Mm -hmm. not Mm -hmm. because we are in the process of evolving all of us Mm -hmm. so there is this terrible told told about the uh, post-resurrection uh, appearance of Jesus and Holly there is so much material for us to um, delve into both in John as well as in the other narratives but one of the things that I would point out is that in all the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus in the Christian narrative he is seen as a stranger mm. nobody recognizes him Mm -hmm. not his closest disciples not mary and the intimate relationship that they had which is the one that we're going to be talking about uh he's a stranger yeah and boy what a powerful and potent metaphor that is for our time and 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 how i think that one of the gone wrong places where we have absolutely gone off the rails in our culture as well as in the world is that we would, many people, would rather have a dictator mm-hmm. than get to know a stranger, mm-hmm. their neighbor. Mm-hmm. And that's part, that's part of what's happening. The demographic in the United States is changing so dramatically, so quickly. And those who have been in power and still are, the white boys club, they don't like that. Mm-hmm. But rather than get to know the potential that is out there in all these uh, beautiful brown, black, and yellow skinned people, uh, they are treated as anathema. Right. And uh, we rob ourselves of that cultural enrichment. There's something about being um, so quick pause. I quoted you in what I wrote yesterday as I was talking about sort of what it means, this sort of overlay between psychological liberation and spiritual liberation. And I love the idea of resurrection or the translation of resurrection as meaning to, I think you said, to stand back up into life. Mm -hmm. Um, And what that is, you know, so the invitation, as you say, is, is every day to stand up to stand up for justice, love, freedom, truth, you know, just these, these principles. Um, and the scary part of that, as, as we see in the Jesus narrative is of becoming the stranger is that we risk unbelonging when we stand up (laughs) because when we show up differently in life, you know how it is. Like if you've got someone in your life who just crosses your boundaries all the time and you have to set a boundary with them, um, that, that person becomes angry. 
right? They, they may eventually learn to respect the boundary, but, but they're angry because, because you've shifted the relationship in some way. You've shifted what you need. You've shifted the outcome. And I think that that, that sense of unbelonging is so scary to people that we then allow ourselves to become fearful for standing up, for resurrecting into ways of being that may actually improve and increase livelihood. Um, and so what's this dance between belonging and resurrecting, right? Um, being a stranger and, and being familiar. And it, it's, it's, it's just a really challenging one because I even find in my own life that when I I mean, I've seen it happen that when I stand up for something, I am made strange, right? Well, the, uh, I have a multitude of things that came to my mind hearing you talk about that is that, you know, one of the things that's going on in my opinion in our political arena right now is that many people are afraid to stand up to get Donald Trump's disapproval. Mm. Many of the people in Republican leadership are just afraid to stand up. And I, I know a story uh, that you, you know the story too. There was a time in the United Methodist Church a number of years ago, somebody asked on the floor of I think it was a general conference meeting. I'm not sure. But, um, and the man who told me the story is the United Methodist minister who has a gay son. Mm. And uh, the question was put to the people who were in the crowd, huge crowd. If we were to vote today on full inclusion of um, gay and lesbian people how many of you would be in favor of that and the man who told me said I was afraid to stand up even though I had a gay son because I was afraid of what that would mean to me in relationship to my colleagues and friends and my future and the profession and all that. I was afraid to stand up there was one man who stood up one man one man who stood up and that was Jim Banks. And that story was told by the man who said I was afraid to stand up at Jim Bankson's retirement. Mm -hmm. And um, when that story was told, of course, Jim got a standing ovation. At the time he did that, the people who were close to Jim and loved Jim applauded that. His colleagues didn't. Mm. Not then. But eventually... He's come out on the right side of history. Mm -hmm. And so you're right. I think that when people do take an unpopular, take a stand that's unpopular, they may lose their standing, as it were, so to speak, among some people. But in the long term, I have faith that Martin Luther King Jr. was right. The arc of justice, the arc bends toward justice. Yeah. And it, and it spirals on itself, right? We go backward, we go back forward, we go backward, we go back forward. And the hope is that each coil of the spiral kind of reaches a little farther forward. Um, and and being, being the person who risks belonging is, um, is a tough 
spot to be in. It requires some real ego strength. <laughs> right. And, um, and, and that's where the ego serves us, right. Is to sort of help us stay in our bodies, <laughs> in ourselves when, when we meet, meet opposition. And, and even, I want to believe that in that opposition, I think of, um, Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, who, who stood up against the Nazis and he died for it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I mean, all the people we've just mentioned, okay, we've mentioned Jesus, we've mentioned Bonhoeffer, we've mentioned Martin Luther King. They all died for standing up. They risked their belonging. And, and yeah. Teilhard de Chardin died excommunicated. Yes. Yeah. More or less. Yeah. You know, he, 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 yes. So we risk this belonging and then we have to trust that 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now, that something that we stood up for is understood. I, gosh, I think I mention this story so often, but the Howard Thurman story about we never eat from the trees that we plant. Right. And that gift of thinking beyond our own space and time beyond linear time, beyond our lifetime, is one that I think American culture does not inhabit very well because we are so centered on my, so centered on my enjoyment, my pleasure, my happiness, my belonging. My winning. Yeah. My possession. Yeah. My position. Yeah. My prestige. All of those things. My. It's, it's, my, it's me as opposed to how am I embedded into this great grand cosmic unfolding how am i even embedded into three generations of a family if i could just think backward and forward on the generation on either side of me i might have a greater sense of i you know our boundaries are false the the boundary between you and me is a relatively false boundary you know because we're always intersecting in some way we're always mm-hmm you know, stepping on each other's toes, <laughs> mm. but, um, yeah, there's, you know, this is, I'm reading a lot of, um, Fritz Kunkel right now, this psychologist, and he was also a very religious man. I think he was grounded in Jungian psychology, but he writes, you know, I is only ever formed in the context of we. Mm-hmm. I've been continuing to read the Spell of the Sensuous by David Abrams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not an easy book for me to read, Holly. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of language. It's a lot of language. Yeah. yeah. But what he's talking about is that our experience of what is is so absolutely unique, but we don't know what that experience is without sharing it with somebody else. That's exactly right. So I go back to my favorite phrase that was given to me from um, Brian Swim. We are autonomous and embedded. That is true no matter what, but our consciousness around our autonomy, around the sense of I absolutely impacts impacts our experience of our embeddedness. Mm -hmm. And um, we we cannot separate ourselves from embeddedness. It's impossible. We can't do it, mm-hmm. but we try very, very hard. Yeah, I grew up hearing a phrase. Um, somebody would point to some 
allegedly outstanding person that I should emulate and say, you know, he's a self-made man. Mm-hmm. There is no such thing. No such thing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I remember I got into big trouble. This is not original line with me. I mean, it was when I said it, but it's not original. Um, somebody we were talking about when I was a kid, and even as a young person, <clears throat> having a sense of the injustice that was done to the black people that were in the community where I lived, and somebody very close to me said, "Well, those people just got to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps." And I mm-hmm. said, "They ain't got no boots." Yeah, you said that as a young kid. Yeah, yeah. you thank yeah, God you were given eyes to see. You know, something in your consciousness allowed for you to say that and see that and to follow that thread. I was given a woman mm. mm-hmm. to love, which mm-hmm. gave me eyes to see. Mm. Always a woman, isn't it? We're amazing. <laughs> well, hello. Yeah. Didn't, which we didn't get to talk about our mm-hmm. the maternal today and the feminine, mm-hmm. but. Um, we're going to get there. What do, what do you think? I, I know we're out of time, but this is just a plan to see. What do you think about Richard Rohr's comment that um, Jesus as an archetype was a, was a person with a man's body and a woman's soul? I think that's still too binary. It's not either or. You know what I mean? Um, you know, I think a yes and no to that. I think, um, Jesus was obviously deeply relational and that is a deeply feminine value. Um, but so, you know, as I, as I said, there are many, many, Mm -hmm. many, many things Mm -hmm. for us to explore in the Mm post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Right. And it's all, I hope people who've hung out with us clearly no it's a parable it's a it's a myth it's a construct it's Mm -hmm. a humanly constructed myth so why is it that we have this incredibly patriarchal strong patriarchal culture that wrote women out of the story and yet it was to a woman that the post-resurrected right. Jesus made his first appearance. So that's where I mean, yeah, you you what say do you make of that? Every important story that we that that you and I discussed together through the gospel of John was made to a woman. Turning water into wine was that was made before women. <laughs> the women at women at the well, that was a what you know, so right. these so women are these vessels of wisdom and life and truth and 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 again relationality. And what Jesus is able to do in a man's body, if we're going to say that, is to say, I am planting my wisdom in the body of a woman, in the mouth of a woman, in the sight of a woman, because she can fertilize it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and so, so in, in the post-resurrection uh, appearance to Mary, where Jesus says mm-hmm. to her, go tell mm-hmm. the disciples. He thereby makes yeah. her the first apostle. And then uh, doesn't get lifted up, mm-hmm. doesn't get talked about, but it's in the mm-hmm. story. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think rather than sort of saying Jesus had the this of a man and the this of a woman, I think he was so integrated that we, we can't really disaggregate one from the other, if that makes sense. And, and so in some ways, uh, Jesus was very yeah. trans. He was transgender, which means yeah. he was beyond gender. You know? Right. And yet I still keep saying yeah. he. <laughs> And I'm wondering how many people who are listening to this just went. Ah! <laughs> hey, all right. See you later. <laughs> yeah. Go to on that well, one. I will see you later. I will see you here in three weeks. Yeah. Enjoy your trip. Anyway, I got to run. All righty. All right. Good Wednesday. I love you. I love doing this. I'll talk to you in three weeks. All righty. Have fun. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.